You are listening to the Bridge Community Church Podcast out of Warrington, Virginia. Our church exists to connect you to God, others, and the marketplace. For more information, you can visit us online at bridge4life.com. Thank you for listening, and we hope you are blessed by today's message. And good morning, everybody. It's great to see everybody here today. And let me just say, I know this is July 4th weekend, and a lot of people are away. Man, am I glad you're here today. It's really hard to preach to nobody. So anyway, I'm glad you made it a point and a priority to be here. So last Sunday, Pastor Danielle opened the series that we're doing, uh, actually we'll be doing it to the end of July, Psalms, Truths for Life. And so we'll be doing certain ones uh, along the way, and today we're going to be going to Psalm 34. So would everybody stand for the reading of the Word? And while Psalm 34 has 22 verses, we're just going to read the first eight, and I will be making references to the rest of the psalm. So let's begin together. I will extol the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. I will glory in the Lord. Let the afflicted hear and rejoice. Glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant. Their faces are never covered with shame. This poor man called and the Lord heard him. He saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and he delivers them. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. Now, Holy Spirit, I pray as we study the Word today that it helps us to grow, develop, to be able to see what your activity looks like when it comes into our lives and what it can not only do in us, but what it can do through us. I pray that we can be confident that Jesus, no matter what we go through in life, you're attentive, you are aware of what's happening. In Jesus' name, and everybody said amen. Amen. The Lord bless you. Be seated. So as we're doing the Psalms, one of the things that I like to do often in a lot of the messages is maybe bring a little insight that will go beyond maybe just the message of what I'm preaching that particular day and maybe help you with the context of the book that we're studying. And this is, uh, that's certainly what I'm going to do right now. Um, I shared this a couple years ago when we went through uh, another set of the Psalms and we're doing a whole other grouping today. But what I want to do is just give this to you. How many have ever looked in the Psalms no, and you noticed that every once in a while in the headings it says book one and then you go like 41 chapters and it says book two. How many have ever noticed that? Okay, so if you go in there, you probably looked at that and go, well, what American came up with that one? Well, it actually is not American. It was actually a part of the Hebrew Scripture. And if you go through the Psalms, you will see, like at Psalm 1, right, at the heading of Psalm 1, it says book 1. Then when you get down to uh, Psalm 41, 42, it says book 2. And if you go all the way through, you'll find that Psalms is made up of actually five books. Now, it wasn't done by us Americans. It was done by the Hebrews, the Jewish people. What you you kind of go, well, what was the purpose of all that? Why did they do that? Uh, what does it mean? Well, I'm glad you asked me that today because I'm actually ready for that question. So to kind of help you out, you might want to take a little, maybe make some margin notes in your, in your Bible. So you're aware. The first book of, of Psalms is actually Psalms 1 through 41. 
And it has a parallel theme to the book of Genesis. It addresses humans and creation. So when you're reading the book of Genesis, you might want to just read a few of the Psalms. They're complementary, okay? Then when you come to book 2 inside the Psalms, Psalms 42 to 72, that actually parallels the theme. It's important for me to say that, theme. It parallels the theme of what's going on in Exodus. What was Exodus? It was about rescue and salvation. And so you will see that that is the theme of, those, uh, of, of that grouping of Psalms. Then in book 3 of Psalms, which is 73 to 89, it parallels the, the, the uh, theme of Leviticus, which is the worship in the sanctuary. Book 4 is uh, Psalm 90 through 106, parallels the theme in Numbers, and that is, has to do with being in the desert and, and uh, learning God's ways. And the final one, Book 5, is Psalm 107 through 150, and it parallels the theme of Deuteronomy, which has to do with God's Word and giving Him praise. Okay, So it's one of those things, if you're ever doing a devotional and you're going through the book of Exodus or Leviticus, you might just go, hey, you know, maybe I want to pop over to that segment of Psalms and just read some parallel Psalms that the Hebrews wrote in relation to that book. Because you have to know that when uh, the Psalms were written, okay, primarily the, the, the scriptures for them were Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And so the Psalms are reflective of that. They wrote Psalms to be incorporated. So you say, well, man, well, that's exciting. What does that have to do with the message? Absolutely nothing. I just thought you wanted to know it. <laughs> hey, I want to give you some tools to help your devotional life, right? The idea is, hey, did not know that. I didn't, I didn't know that they could play off of each other that way. But getting to the psalm that we read today, so you can see the psalm that we read today falls into the category of humans and creation. And certainly Psalm 34 has a lot of insights into what I call humanity and the plights and the difficulties of humanity. And so as we look at Psalm 34, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to preach a little bit different uh, than what I normally do. I'm actually going to try to do a better job of painting a picture for the context because, you know, I've always said uh, text without context leaves a pretext, but this is one of those, if you get a little better understanding of the context, suddenly those scriptures are like, holy cow, I had no idea what that meant. Now that I've got the context, oh my goodness, it's good stuff. And it really is. And so give me a little time here to set up, if you could, the book of, of uh, or the chapter that we're reading, a Psalm 34. Let me set it up. So here's a couple things you need to know about Psalm 34. It's actually an acrostic poem, and I know that moves your heart right there when I said acrostic poem. Some of you are grabbing your Webster's Dictionary going, acrostic poem, what is that? And all my English majors, they already know. It is, the verses begin with successive letters of the alphabet, the Hebrew alphabet. So in other words, it was taking a letter out of the Hebrew alphabet, and every verse began with the next letter. You say, well, I look at it, I don't see A, B, C, D. You, you understand, that's English. So it doesn't translate well into our language, but in the Hebrew language, they would see that it is lined up alphabetically. And so, so what this was, this is key. This was designed to be memorized. Some of you who are in the schools and you do teaching, you understand, you'll say A, A stands for, B stands for, you're trying to teach the kids the letter of the alphabet and a word association. And this is no different. So again, so I'm kind of getting closer. You start to see that David wrote this 
And this psalm was designed to be memorized easily because it was based on the, uh, on the Hebrew alphabet. Why would he write a psalm like that? And why was it so important that he said, I want to make this as simple for you because you need to remember this. I'm glad you asked that. We're going to get to that, okay? So, one of the things that you read about in the New Testament is that the fact that it was referred to by the writers of the New Testament. Peter quoted Psalm chapter 34, verses 12 through 16 in the book that he wrote, in first, and he quotes it in 1 Peter chapter 3. The Apostle John, he quoted uh, Psalm 34, 20 when he was recounting the, uh, the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And, and, and so he used one of the scriptures to show that it was prophesied about Jesus. So here we get into some of the things that now bring this home. And if all the part, I would say, of everything you're going to hear this morning, it's probably the most important part that you lean in and get all this. You ready? How many are ready? All 20 of you. Okay. The context of Psalm 34 is 1 Samuel 21, verse 10, all the way through chapter 22, verse 2. Now, I'm not expecting you to go there. I'm just setting that up, and I'll tell you the story. What has happened in this particular text is this. King Saul was trying to kill David. David's already killed Goliath. David's already a hero. Saul's already hired David. David's working for the king. And somewhere along the way, Saul becomes tormented. And that torment, uh, he starts to have uh, um, wrong feelings, anxieties, and fears about David. And he feels threatened. It's all false. But he becomes convinced that now he's trying to kill David. Not just once. He tries many times to kill David. David keeps escaping. He recognizes what's going on. And it's at this junction that David goes... He's serious. If I don't get out of here, the king is going to kill me. And there's nobody to stop him. He has the authority to pronounce judgment on my life. And so he's trying to kill David. So David escaped to Gath. What is Gath? It was a Philistine city. It was the hometown of Goliath. Did you hear me say Goliath has already been killed? There's something else to the story that's not up here, and I'll tell you this this. Right before all this unfolds, when David is on the run, before he gets the gaff, he's on the run, he's lost his weapon, his sword. So he goes to the priest, one of the priests, and the priest, they had kept Goliath's sword as a trophy. And so when David was hiding, he went to this priest and he says, I need, I need a weapon. I'm running for my life, I need a sword. And so the priest gives him Goliath's sword as a weapon. Now, how many know Goliath's sword was bigger than normal? So having Goliath's sword sort of identified you as, oh, you're the guy who killed Goliath. Now, just because you're anointed doesn't always make you smart. And some of you went, I can't believe he said that and he, that he knows that. David leaves with Goliath's sword and goes to Gath. Well, what do you think's going to happen? He's walking into the hometown of Gath carrying Goliath's sword. See, you got to remember, they didn't have photos of who did what back then. You were basically, 
That's why it was important that people wore certain garments and robes because it identified their role. So it's not, I'll just use the example of the king. Most people didn't have a picture of the king. They knew it was the king based on what he was wearing. Does that make sense? So when David shows up in Gath and he's got the sword of Goliath, they're like, you're David. There's only one way you would have the sword. You're the guy. And so they start to go to the king of Gath, of the Philistines, to say, the guy who killed Goliath, the hometown boy, he's here. David recognizes it was not a good move at that point. He's slow at this point, but he's got there. He got there. So what does he do? He fiends insanity. And I mean, David becomes an actor to... To, he's, the, he's, he's, he's drooling all over him. It's in the scripture. He's drooling all over himself. Now, why did David do that? Because he knew a Philistine belief. They thought people who acted insane had evil spirits. And if you touch them, you'll get it too. So David goes into this thing and he's foaming at the mouth and the whole thing. And they go to the king of Gath and they say, David's here. And he says, yeah, and he's crazy. I'm not touching the guy. I don't want whatever he's got. David recognizes this is probably a good time to leave town. He does. Where does David go? He, after being, pretending to be insane, he escaped to a cave in Adullam. Now, I don't expect the location to stand out to you, but the point was he had a location. They know where it is. There's a cave, and it's in Adullam. But here's what happened when David got to the cave. When he got there, David's family showed up. Why did David's family show up? Because Saul, in order to get David, has now put the family on the table. They're fair game to the king. The family has to flee. They hear David's at the cave at Adullam, so they go to David you know, hey, you got to protect us because the king to get to you is coming after us and we've had, we've had to clear out. While he's there, 400 men show up. All of them with similar type stories. We're running for our life. We have an association with you. We're friends with some. some we're on the king's radar now. And so, for, so David goes to a cave, okay, to be safe. And now 400 men show up, including his family. How I many you know that had to be a huge cave? And while he's there, David writes this psalm in the cave. How many know you're already starting to see some new dynamics on that one? This guy is on the run for his life. And what happens is this. It is believed, like I said, now there's always some marginal uh, views out there that have some merit. But the best that we have available to us the, the, the majority, and notice I said, I didn't say unanimous, I said the majority consensus is, is that David wrote this while he was in the cave. And here's the beauty, this is, David wrote this and he would have sang it to his men. Now I don't know the tune, and I'm not even going to try to go there today. <laughs> I'm not even going to try it tomorrow, next week, next month, next year, you're safe, okay? David wrote this. I told you it was an acrostic poem, right? 400 guys, his family, hiding out in a cave. David wrote this in the cave. He would have sang this. So as we go through this today, I want you to keep that resonating in your head. Why would David have sung it? Because music has a way of opening up new pathways in our mind 
that just people talking to us doesn't work. But you put something to, you put lyrics to music and somehow it has the ability to open up new dimensions of our heart, soul, and spirit. I will promise you this, you have, you have never woke up in the morning with a sermon of Pastor Greg on your brain. I'm okay with that. But I'll bet you've woke up with a song coming out of your head. I bet you've fallen asleep with a song. I bet you had a dream or two with a song. I bet you in the middle of life, whether it be a high or a low, you spontaneously began to sing a song reflective of what was going on in the spur of the moment. And you maybe hadn't sung that song in years, but suddenly something happened in your life and you found yourself either on a great high, something great has happened, or a really low, low. And suddenly you find you say, man, I haven't sung that song since I was a kid. Where'd that come from? But music has a way of taking stuff in us deeper. And David wanted to do that. He said, this is not just some words that I wrote. It's not just cute. I want you to memorize it. I want you to sing it. He was telling these guys, listen, what I have to tell you is crucial. From whatever, because this was basically the launch pad for when David would become king one day. Okay? This is because... Well, let me get to this, because it's while he's here that they made him commander. This is where David finally becomes an official commander. Now, it's not the type of group that he wanted. I mean, they're all wanted by the government. How many know that's, that could be a little weird. What was your first commanding? Well, I had a bunch of rebels. But you know, they, they, they all... We don't know if they made him commander after, before he wrote the psalm or if after hearing the psalm they finally arrived. This guy, this guy needs to be our leader. We don't know where this psalm fell. But it was in this context that the guys in David's family said, you're the leader. I mean, man, I have so many rabbit trails I want to get on this morning. God shapes his best leaders in caves. I mean, I could keep spouting them off. But nobody, nobody signs up and fills an application out saying, oh God, send me to the cave. But sometimes God says, you want to be a leader? Go to the cave. Oh God, I don't want to go there. That's, God says, go to the cave. Because that's where I have your undivided attention. No distractions. You have no pomp and ceremony around you. It's you and me. I want to talk to you. Hmm. By the way, you go through the Old Testament. Elijah was sent to a cave. I mean, it's, it's, okay. Stop asking so many questions. You're throwing me off this morning, okay? So David, David becomes a commander for the first time. David becomes the commander of this group, and it's this group that's going to propel him into the kingship. But he doesn't know that. He doesn't know that's where it's going to go. But because he conducted himself right, God honored him and rewarded him. So now we're going to break apart this psalm, okay? And begin to let, and again, I'm going to keep coming back to you. Remember, he's singing this. It has a whole different dynamic. These rough, tough, go get them type mentality guys, you think, we got to give a, a great speech, inspirational. David says, I want to sing to you. 
I think God turned that cave into a holy moment. I think there were grown men that when David sang this, some of the roughest, toughest, go get them type guys stood there, and I bet you tears were running down their face going, I needed to be reminded of that. I needed to know that. Because you see, they were on the run, their homes had been taken, they'd had to hide their families, because any, everything was fair game now to Saul. Saul would, not, would, would leave no stone unturned to get the people that he wanted to kill. So let's, let's begin to look at this. Number one, everybody just read it out loud. David, he doesn't praise God, he praises God with excitement. Now again, let's remind yourselves, he's on the run, he's a wanted man, he's in a cave. And what does he say? He sings this to his guys. I will extol the Lord at all times, his praise will always be on my lips. I will glory in the Lord. Let the afflicted hear and rejoice. Who were the afflicted? His men, his family. And he says, and I'm excited. And you need to get excited too. Glorify the Lord with me. I can see David's going around, come on. Glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. He's on the precipice of having that fulfilled. He got away from Saul only to find himself trapped again and he got away from Gath and he's saying, listen man, he has delivered me from everything so far. Those who look to him are radiant. Their faces are never covered with shame. You had people in that cave whose head was down and they were feeling shame. How did we end up in this boat? How did we end up becoming the most wanted people in Israel? How did this happen? Why am I standing in a cave, hiding my family somewhere else, not knowing what tomorrow? And David says, those who look to him are radiant. Their faces are never covered with shame. I could hear David singing to him, man, lift up your head. Don't you sit here in this cave with your head down. God has kept us thus far. He has gotten us to where we are, and we all found each other. You're, look to him. Get rid of that shame and depression. Your face, I can just see guys in that cave looking up, man, and just tears running down their faces going, David, I need that. I gave my life for my country, and now my country's trying to take my life. How did I get here? David praises God with excitement. He tells those afflicted warriors, his family, God's faithful, man. I didn't say everything was working out right, but right now, God has been faithful. We're all here. We're all breathing. We're all alive. Then he says, number two, read it out loud. David proclaims that living right has troubles and suffering. And everybody at the bridge said, hallelujah. <laughs> yeah. Really? See, see, this is the elephant in the room. If God is for us, then why are we here and Saul is where he is? That doesn't make sense. This should be flipped around. Why are we the ones having to hide out here? And David said, let's talk about the elephant in the room. Don't get the idea that if you ever do everything right, that everything works out good. Hey, I'm here to tell you, life is full of injustices. 
and sometimes the righteous suffer. But here's the difference. When you suffer for doing wrong, there's no light at the end of the tunnel because you keep building in consequences by doing wrong. But when you do right and there's, and there's suffering, there's a light at the end of the t- tunnel because the goodness will always overcome the suffering. So you have to ask yourself, am I suffering because I've done wrong? Well, then that's going to be endless. But if I'm suffering for doing what's right, I'll learn, I'll learn stamina. I'll learn perseverance. I will learn outlook, an outlook. See, here's the difference. It's, it's, it's like being on the horizon. You're in the middle of the wilderness. And when you, when you suffer for doing good, you still have direction. But when you suffer for doing wrong, you don't know what your next move needs to be because everything is cloudy, because everything you do keeps getting upended. So it's like being lost in the wilderness. You can see a horizon, and that might be your way out. But because you're lost, you don't know that's your way out. So every horizon to you looks lost. But you know, you put somebody in that same wilderness, in that same, dire- in that same place who has a compass and they have a sense of direction, they can look at all the horizons and the person standing next to them is lost, but the person with the compass, a moral compass, can go, and that's the direction we need to go. All these other directions are lost directions, but that direction is a found direction. That's our, that's our straightest. That's what morality does for us. It's not that we don't find ourselves in the wilderness. It's just that when we do, we know where we're going and we know how we're going to get there. Yeah, there's a lot of hiking. There's a lot of ups and downs. There's probably a lot of scrapes and blisters along the way, but I know where I'm headed. There's a light at the end of the tunnel. Everybody said amen. But, so the New Testament talks a lot about this in the book of Acts. Paul was, or, uh, Luke wrote this, Acts 14. He was recounting some of uh, Paul's teachings. He said, then they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. Everybody read this. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they said. Well, hallelujah. He didn't say might be, could be. He said, we will, we must. It's a part of life. If you haven't discovered by now, we're not in heaven yet. Then you come to 2 Timothy 3.12. Everybody read this with me. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. doesn't say might be, could be, should be, says will. Wow. So sometimes, yes, doing right helps us to work through those difficulties. Doing right can limit the number of difficulties, but doing right does not cancel all difficulties. So when it does come, doing what's right gives me moral moral direction. It gives me a ground to stand on, and I can work through it, and I can go and and be and and be what God needs me to be. Now, I want you to catch this. I got two more points to go, and these are totally different than how I normally present a point. So let me set this up. There's a difficulty inside Psalm 34 that. It's hard for us to pick up because it was written in Hebrew. It was written in acrostic poem form. It was saying to David's men, okay? And most of us here don't know Hebrew. We're still trying to figure out what an acrostic poem is, (laughs) okay? And it's not formatted for us to pick it up because, you know, we like this uh, point one, point two, point three, point four, point five. 
Well, if you haven't figured out by now, the Hebrews didn't always follow that schedule here. They had a way, and they would recognize it, but you and I, we don't. So I'm going to kind of give this to you in rapid direction. And it has to do with this. In this poem that David sang to his men were the promises of God. He sang the promises of God to his men. How cool is that? But as he's singing the, the promises, he then, inside this same psalm is he gives the conditions for those promises. Wow. He's saying, here's the promises of God, but here's what we have to do in response to see those promises. These promises just don't happen no matter what we do. We have a responsibility to be a certain way, to be a certain kind of people. And when we are these types of people, these promises become a reality. Now, and I say this in a totally respectful way. You can understand why David would be saying this to a group of warriors. Because in, in sometimes when the adrenaline gets going in the rush and the heat of battle, it would be easy to go into some gray areas or even take a step across into the dark world and then try to come back out. of. War has a way, if we're not careful, can suck us to places that we don't want to go. And I'm talking emotionally and mentally and morally. And so David's actually telling me, he's, He's, be, he's preparing his men for, listen, I know what's probably coming down the pike, but we need to know that we have to conduct ourselves in a certain way or we don't get God's blessing. And if God's not blessing us, we're already dead men. God makes his best people in caves, I'm telling you. The only voice you got is his. If you've ever been in a cave, it's cool. You can whisper and it just carries. In a cave, you hear everything. Anyway, stop asking questions about the cave. All right, here we go. Number three, read it out loud. David notes the promises of God. There's a bunch of them here that we don't see. I'm highlighting. In verse four, he says, he delivered me from all my fears. He says, God delivers us from fears. What are fears? Fears are sometimes tr based on truth and sometimes fears are based on shadows. He says, God will deliver you from your fears. In verse Six, he says, he saved him out of all of his troubles. You know, there's some things I wish I could advise God. Why does it have to say, out of, why can't you just say he keeps him from all trouble? But that's not what God said. God said, I saved him from all their troubles. Well, I, I, would, I would just like you to like, let's just keep us out. And God's like, well, we don't do that. Well, I know, but I'm just advising you, God. David says, man, I've had a lot of troubles. God's gotten me out of them, every, every one of them. Every one of them. He says in verse 7, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him. This is interesting because now David is going into, again, you're talking to people, when David is singing this, you're talking to people who are very much into the real world. How many people do they have? How many people do we have? How many swords they got? How many swords we got? Who's got the high ground? Who has, you know, I mean, it's total analytics on of the battle. And David says, you know, there's a thing out there called the Lord's angel. He, he's got our back. Kind of makes you wonder how they would have received that. But I will tell you this, it's no different today. You start preaching on angels and you get this kind of, like, you, you'll see people go, is he going to go there? Yeah, I am. <laughs> Bible's full of stories about angels. You say, yeah, but you know, let's just, let's just make a reference and move on. Because it's uncomfortable. I mean, who wants to go say, how was your day? I saw an angel. 
How many know that's a great way to get marginalized in any conversation? Now you say, well, have you seen an angel? No, I've never seen an angel. But you know what? That doesn't mean they don't exist. Well, if you've never seen one, how do you know they exist? Well, I've never been to China, but I'm pretty sure it's there. <laughs> you know, sometimes we have these things that somehow the world is, defend- is defined by based on what I see. Can I just tell you, you know, I've, 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 I've not seen Jupiter, but I'm pretty sure it's there. All the, we at some point have to recognize reality is beyond all of our experience. It goes way beyond our ability to have all the experiences. There are things that just are. And so when you come to this, I'm going to show you scripture. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14. Everybody read this. Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? I want you to process that. God says, people who are going to get saved, you got to sign an angel. Now, this is pretty interesting given that we, we have the Holy Spirit. And isn't it interesting? You're like, well, if I have the Holy Spirit, why would I need angels? You're like, yeah, I don't know. But evidently, we have a backup force or something. It's not just the Holy Spirit. It tells us angels are ministering spirits sent to those who will inherit salvation. Wow. And David stands in that cave. He said, the Lord encamps around those who fears him. He says, we're in a cave, but I just want you to know we got protection you can't see. For hardened warriors, that's a tough sell. Because they want to say, I, I can count how many people are here, and I know how many people they got. I know the weapons we have. I know the weapons they got. David, we have an extreme deficiency. And David says, yeah, but they don't have the angel of the Lord encamping around them. That's priceless. Then in verse 9, he says, for those who fear him lack nothing. So he's saying here that God promises that he'll take care of the needs. It may not be of the caliber that we want, but God is going to take care of us. Listen, we're all here. We're alive. We don't lack anything, guys. In verse 12, he says, love life and desires to see many good days. God says, you have better days ahead of you. Hang in there. Don't quit. Don't give up. In verse 15, he says, his ears are attentive to their cry. You can be sure there were a lot of crying people in the cave because that's not where they thought life would take them. He was saying, God hears you. He listens to everything you're saying. He then goes on and says in verse 18, he's close to the brokenhearted, saves those who are crushed in spirit. Trust me, he was reading the room. Because like I said, many of them had lost their family heritage of where they had grown up. Estates and homes had been taken from them. Their families have had to be put in hiding. Their homes, their businesses have been destroyed. Their identity wiped from a village. They're crushed. They won't have anything to hand off to their kids. They don't even know if their kids are going to live. Their whole world as they've known it has collapsed. They are broken hearted. They are crushed in spirit. And David says, God's here. He's here. He is so close to you right now. God's hand is upon you. And then in verse 22, he says he will rescue his servant. He will take, God, when you get on over your head, 
God is going to rescue you. I know I keep saying this. Can you imagine what the response in the cave is as David's singing this? These guys are going, he gets us. He gets us. And I just say that. That's one of the things what makes a great leader. A great leader recognizes, I'm not in this cave by myself. So let's not make it all about me. A great leader opens their eyes and says, I thought I was the only one in this cave. There's other people too. And sometimes a leader recognizes the miracle they need is the miracle that other people need. Oh, come on, say amen to that. Yeah, God makes his best people in caves. It's just that we don't want to go there. So, last point, and it's a long one, so don't get excited. You're getting out of here early. Number four, read it out loud. David, he notes the conditions. All with those promises, he is inserting things that must accompany a person to see those promises. In verse four, he says, I sought the Lord. Let me tell you, it all begins with this. Don't ask God to be coming through if you ain't talking to him. Over a period of time of life, I've had people on occasion go, and I know their life, so when I say this, it's appropriate. They go, I can't believe God let this happen. I can't believe God. And I say, hey, let's back this up. What's the conversation been like between you and God over the last few months? Well, I know I haven't been what I said. Just let's be careful about saying something about God because you haven't been talking to Him. So if you're not talking... That means you're not listening. How about instead of using this as a time to blame God, how about we use this time to reconnect with God? Don't use it as a tool to push God even further. He was already, you've already pushed him away. This is the time to use this crisis in your life to grab hold of him. Okay? That word sought means to do so intently. It doesn't mean, okay, God, here I am. No, it means to like, God, here I am, here I am, here I am. And then in verse 6, it says, the poor, this poor man called out. If you got your Bible with you, I want you to get this image with you and somehow capture it so the next time you read this. This is, I'm convinced this is how David said it. This poor man called out. The Lord heard him. He wasn't talking a third person. Sometimes we read that and we think David was observing a poor man. This poor man called out and the Lord heard him. No, no, I think it was this. When you get the context of what that was about, it was David going, this poor man called out. And God heard him. God heard him. Because at this point, David is poor. He has nothing. The only thing he has is what he has on his back and in his hands as he's in that cave. Then it says, fear him. So this is not, a, this is not an intimidation. This is not, you know, this, uh, oh my gosh, i got to be careful because I'm walking on eggshells. If I tick God off, he takes me out. No, it's talking about reverence and awe. That in spite of everything that is happening in, in life, he says, I still have an awe for God. 
I'm still in awe. I'm still wowed by him. Then in verse 8, he says, taste and see. Take refuge in him. That phrase, taste and see. He's saying there's some things you cannot know about God until you buy in. There are some things that you can't learn about God from a distant study. You have to pick it up and participate in it. I won't ask how many of you have ever sat down to a meal and there's one particular item as you eat it and you determine by texture and smell that you didn't like it. Can I get a witness? And I'm one of those guys that keep my plate completely compartmentalized from all the other elements. I like a half inch from one item to the other. I do not like them touching. Anybody with me? I love those plates that are divided automatically, you know. <laughs> I hate round plates with no divisions in them. I want them, I want them parceled off. I want my food, okay. And what happens is this. I've been that guy who said, yeah, based on the texture and smell, I don't think I'm one of that. And my wife said, oh, you're going to love it. Oh, don't be telling me. I'm a grown man. <laughs> been down this road before, you know. I got conned by my parents growing up. I know all the tricks to get a kid to eat something he didn't want to eat. And so but somehow, inevitably, something will touch, and I didn't know it, and I taste it, and I realize something else is on it, and then I realize it has the stuff that I said I didn't like based on texture. And now, and I was like, wow, that's pretty good. Now we have a man problem. How do I acknowledge I like it, but I need to save face? Oh, don't act like you have not had these thoughts going on in your head. And so I'm like, now I like it, but now, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lose credibility because that's always my line to get out of something here, you know. So how do I acknowledge I like it? And, you know, there's, and you learn. There's some things you cannot judge by texture and smell until you taste and see. And then you go, oh, it's not what I thought it was. So many people make a judgment about God and they've never tasted and seen you don't know taste and see and it says take refuge in him taking refuge means to grab on and not let go it means that when you start to lose your grip you let go and you get a firmer grip you, you, refuge means I'm not letting go man you might just catch me in the middle of regripping, but that re when I'm regripping, I'm not letting go to walk away. I'm regripping to get a stronger grip. I'm not leaving. In verse 9, he says, Fear. Notice he says it again. He keeps telling his guys, Don't lose your awe of God. Don't lose him. Don't lose your wow factor of God. And in verse 13, he says, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from telling lies. These guys are suffering immense injustice. And there's something about human behavior. If some of you are in law enforcement or you have to go to the courts, you know what I'm about to say. When we don't like somebody, when we are, we've decided that somebody is maybe evil or has done bad, and we now have to give witness... The tendency is to embellish the story to make them look even worse than what they really are. It's kind of a way of just we, just, we just feel like we need to get our digs in, you know? So on a scale of one to ten, you know, ten is the ultimate evil. There are seven, well, by golly, I'll get you to a nine or ten by the end of the day. On how I tell, you know, we just, part of it's the rage, the hatred, 
the hurt. We just feel the need to help the process, to make it more worse so that that person gets what we think they need to get. And David is standing in front of these men and he's singing to them. Keep your tongue from evil. Nobody is to curse the king. Nobody. Keep your lips from telling lies. Don't you embellish the story because you think Saul needs to look worse. He already looks bad. He doesn't need our assistance. Because in a group like that, that would just be some, we, people would start playing off of each story. Oh yeah, well that reminds me when, oh I ain't nothing, let me tell you what he did. And suddenly you got a whole bunch of stuff that Saul never did, which takes away from the things that he does need to be judged for. Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from telling lies. Turn from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. David says from the outgo, I'm going to be trying to make things right with Saul. There's never a day, there's never a time when I won't be trying to make peace. He may not want it, but I'm not, he, I'm not going to be the one who's going to be blamed for walking away. I will want peace. We will pursue it. And then we wrap this up. He will rescue his servants. Notice the word servants. Servants are people who have relationship and servants are people who are engaged. James expands on this in his gospel. Faith without works is... David says we're going to be viewed as people who serve God not by just what we proclaim. We are going to be viewed as followers of God based on what we do. They will hear it from us and they will see what we do. We're servants. Let's make sure the people see that we're serving. And I say that for this reason. Maybe you find yourself in a tough jam today. Maybe you find yourself in a situation. You don't know what to do. David would sing you the psalm. David would sing this to you. To say, let me tell you about the faithfulness of God. As a man who had to hide in a cave, been in a cave, lived in a cave, and had other people, David would say, fear God. Keep your awe. Keep your reverence. He would give you this description. No matter what's waiting for you outside that cave, conduct yourself worthy of the kingdom. Don't throw away your, your beliefs. Don't throw away your morality. Don't throw caution to the wind. Keep who you are in God foremost because that's the moral compass that you need to get out of that valley. And everybody's sitting there. 